I think it, it behooves anybody that has any kind of a uh, scientific inclination, anytime they see something that contradicts what they believe is true, they, they really ought to pay attention to that and try to dig a little bit deeper. And here, you know, I just want to just pause there and say this. <laughs> this is Highlight and underline that comment. Yeah. Yes. Welcome to the Gold Exchange Podcast, where we untangle market and policy complexity using timeless economic principles. For show notes and archives, go to goldexchangepodcast.com. Now, on to today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Gold Exchange Podcast. My name is Dixon Buchanan. I'm the Vice President of Marketing for Monetary Metals, and I'll be hosting today's episode. I'm joined by Keith Wiener, the founder and CEO. I'm very excited about today's episode because we have the Paul Bellinger as our guest today. Paul is, in my opinion, one of the premier analysts on gold and gold investing, and I would say a real gift to the precious metal community. Let me unpack what I mean by that. If you spent any amount of time in the precious metal interwebs, which we all know can be a dark and gloomy place uh, at times, it is excruciatingly difficult to find solid, unbiased, well-researched analysis on precious metals. And that's because the vast majority of what passes for analysis is simply pandering to people's fear or greed as they try to, tell, as they try to sell you something. There's the fear camp, which is epitomized by the, the dollar is going to crash tomorrow. So hurry up and buy your gold and silver now before it's too late. And then there's the greed camp, which is gold is on its way to five, 10, nay, $60,000 an ounce, as we heard one commenter say one time. Uh, so you better pick up the phone and dial 1-800-BUY-GOLD-NOW. And of course, these are two sides of the same coin, right? There's, you know, the fear and greed are two sides of the same coin. So you get this kind of toxic cocktail where it's, it's almost like how to profit with gold from the coming collapse, right? How to get rich with gold as the world burns around you. Um, that's unfortunately what a lot of analysis is, but Paul is one of those rare breeds that doesn't do any of that. Instead, he has produced hundreds of videos and most recently a book, which include timeless data-driven analysis on the benefits of owning gold and how gold can help investors achieve their financial objectives. He's done all of this on his own as an independent thinker, researcher, and investor himself, all while concluding a successful career as a chemical engineer. Paul, Keith, and I are very pleased to have you. Welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be invited. Thanks for having me. Great. So before we get started, I want to briefly mention a few ways that our audience can connect with Paul and his work. First, there's his YouTube channel. Most of his analysis, I want to say going back to almost a decade, Paul, if that's right. That's How right. long have you about? Okay, so about a decade, Paul has been producing videos uh, on his YouTube channel, which is called Belong P. That's B-E-L-A-N-G-P. Highly encourage you to press pause right now, find Belong P on YouTube and hit subscribe on his channel. Uh, you'll thank me later. In addition to YouTube, Paul has published, uh, just recently published, I believe last month, uh, published uh, his book, which is called Evidence-Based Wealth, How to Engineer Your Early Retirement. 
and that can be purchased on Amazon. Any other place that can be purchased, Paul, or is that the best? No, no, just, just Amazon for now. Yeah. Just Amazon. Okay, great. Last but not least, he is also the owner and author of Evidence-Based Wealth, the website, which contains his written analysis. I'm sure most of you are probably familiar with Paul uh, watching his videos, but he does write as well. He does publish uh, written word content on his site, and I can attest that it is as good as his videos are. So be sure to check out his website. Uh, we'll include links to, to all of those in the show notes uh, once, once we publish this episode. Okay, so for today's episode, I think it's, I think it's only fitting that we uh, take a deep dive into gold on this episode. Between the two of you, Keith and Paul, uh, we have a large amount of combined knowledge on gold in this room right now, in this virtual uh, space. We might, uh, we might break your speakers or crash the internet with the amount of gold knowledge between the two of you. Um, so I think we should, we should uh, you know, take that, that, that second layer, third layer down into gold uh, in today's episode. And I think what would be particularly interesting is to is to cover, because when I, when I think about both of you, you've arrived to similar conclusions on gold, but you've taken very different paths to get there. So I, I think that would be really fruitful ground to cover for today's episode. Um, obviously our audience is gonna be familiar with, with Keith and his work. So uh, we should you know, focus more on you, Paul, and kind of let you you know, explain and expound on your body of work and give Keith the opportunity to comment on that. Um, would love for you to kind of go through your research and findings on gold and tell us a bit about your methodology, kind of the tools that you use uh, in, when you do your research. Uh, but why don't we start by just you, Paul, telling us a little bit about yourself, your background, and, and maybe how you were introduced to gold originally. Sure, sure. Um... I'll try to keep it brief. Um, so I graduated with my PhD in chemical engineering from Lehigh University in the mid nineties. And that's when I took my first job in the industrial world. And um, as we all know, when we first get a job, one of the first things that they do is they introduce you to the 401k. Um, and that's when I decided that, hey, it, it would probably be a good idea to figure out how these things work and how to do it properly. So mm. I did a, um, deep dive into stock investing because that's primarily what they offer. And um, I gravitated towards the value investing school of thought. You know, that's the Ben Grahams, Warren Buffetts, and, and so forth. And um, I, I thought um, it was really interesting stuff. It seemed like a good way to, to study stocks and figure out how to buy things that were better than what everyone else was buying. And um, one thing that caught my attention in 1997 was uh, hearing that Warren Buffett had bought uh, a lot of silver and was uh, shortly thereafter persuaded to divest himself of it. But I found that that to be very curious and I started studying why it was that he bought silver. And uh, long story short, I got into the metals. Um, unfortunately, I think I got into uh, the wrong metal for the wrong reason, but it led me down a path that allowed me to understand gold uh, eventually. Um, so I started reading articles. Um, as you know, um, it, the way that things usually work out is when you're looking for things uh, to confirm your hypothesis, you tend to find all kinds of things. 
And I stumbled upon some work by Ted Butler, um, who had even compiled all of his articles into a book. Um, so I, I read it um, and I was thoroughly convinced that I was right. Uh, unfortunately, later on, I found out that uh, Mr. Butler had missed a bunch of uh, fundamental things. For example, there's a lot of silver out there on the market and it is being lent, um, not necessarily shorted to hammer things down, but it's being lent by bullion banks on behalf of their uh, customers to make a profit. Um, but anyway, um, as I went further and further down the rabbit hole, I started learning a little bit more about central banking. I learned more about the world of gold. Um, I learned about the LBMA. I learned how things work on comics. I uh, pretty quickly figured out that uh, gold was one of those rare things that the common man could own in similar uh, quality uh, to what the rich families use in order to preserve their wealth during times of crisis. Um, you know, they, they can't afford fine art or the, the choicest land, uh, you know, antique furniture of the same quality as uh, what the rich people own, but, you know, they can own gold. Um, so over time, over the uh, span of the 2000s, I uh, not only accumulated stocks, but I started accumulating gold in addition to silver. And towards the end of, I guess it was uh, 2010, 2000, at the beginning of 2011, I noticed something very curious, and that was the emergence of a lot of uh, silver-oriented YouTube channels where self-proclaimed uh, self experts in silver were talking about how easy it would be to get super rich buying silver, and they were talking about the uh, rules that they follow, how to buy silver lunar Luna coins from uh, you know, the Perth Mint, uh, how eventually we'd get back to a point where one silver dime would be equivalent to a day's wages. And the price of silver was going absolutely parabolic. And that's when I realized that ah, it's probably time to lighten up uh, <laughs> because there's absolutely too much speculative activity in it. And I managed to, um, and this was uh, fortunate, um, it, it was just uh, luck on my behalf, but uh, I managed to dump most of my silver in exchange for gold when the gold to silver ratio hit about 35. Uh, I think I got a little bit out at 32, but it was right. just dumb luck, but I'll take dumb luck. Um, <laughs> I'm fine with that. Um, and I just held on to the gold throughout the rest of the 2000s, uh, or 2010 decade and added a little bit to it as time went on. Um, but I continued to study. And that's when I learned a lot more about central banking and the relationship between uh, gold and the value of currencies like the Euro and the dollar. And also took a look at, uh, took a deeper dive into some statistical analysis around uh, mixtures of bonds, stocks and gold. And um, to this day, I basically follow a lot of the uh, conclusions that I came up with on how the three assets relate to each other. Um, so it was uh, last year that I reached a point where I was able to retire. So I had uh, reached financial independence. Um, my company had merged with another competitor a couple of years before, and the cultures really didn't get along together. So it became an um, unpleasant place to work. So it seemed like a confluence of events kind of pushed me out the door. And that's when I started um, you know, putting out uh, chapters in my book. Uh, I was uh, providing them for free on my website, uh, but I had to take those down recently due to a contractual obligation with Amazon when I actually did publish my book. 
but the website's still there with uh, free articles and I'm still producing videos on uh, Blind P uh, on YouTube. And so that brings us to the present. I was going to say, I have uh, two things to add. One is um, I had my own thoughtful disagreement with Ted Butler. Um, as he had put out this article, this is years, maybe a decade or two after uh, you encountered him, in which he was taking the, the tone and the approach of like a professor emeritus who's an old man now and has made his contributions to the world, won his Nobel Prize taught all the influential professors emeritus in the field at all the other top universities. And now in this magnanimous gesture, you know, saying, hey, here's my body of work and here's my contribution. And if anybody has any thoughtful disagreement, I'd, I'd love to hear it. And so I wrote an article, uh, said, okay, in that spirit, let me take you up on that. And um, first, let me attempt to summarize your argument that Silver's manipulated using terms and framed in a way that I, you would have to agree with. And then based on there, then let me criticize uh, the idea. And um, by that point we had finally, so we've licensed um, what's called the Tick History Database from then Thompson Reuters, now Refinitive, uh, that contains every bid and every offer on gold and silver, both spot on every futures contract going back to 1995 with sub millisecond resolution, <laughs> terabytes of, of data. So we first had to build a big data platform. You can't just shove terabytes of data into a SQL database, and, you know, there you go. Um, and then built our own uh, data science platform to start analyzing it and um, normalizing and cleaning it up. And there's a lot of different data issues that you run into there. And anyways, by that point, we had the data to show what happens when every futures contract matures. And um, I said, uh, uh, in my open, in my thoughtful disagreement with Ted Butler, I said, whenever two scientific theories compete, what scientists look for is an edge case where the two theories predict an opposite behavior. And then, uh, so if, if physicists, you know, if, if Einstein says that when we find a super duper pulsing magnetic quasar object in the, in the distant universe, it's going to bend light to the left, I suppose Lorentz said it's going to bend, you know, his theory would predict it would bend light to the right. Then all of physics is sitting on the edge of their seat, waiting with bated breath for when we can finally build a, a, a telescope big enough to go find one of these objects. And then, as you know, let's say we put the Hubble um, Space Telescope out there, then everyone's like, you know, chewing their fingernails down to stumps. Well, well, what is it? Is it left or right? Left or right? And then when the answer finally comes in, it's left then Lorenz's you know, theory is, is relegated to the ash heap of history. Uh, Einstein is vindicated and um, you know, life goes on. I said, so we have two theories here. One is that the banks are naked short um, you know, futures. Uh, the other is that the banks are arbitraging between spot and futures. Uh, and therefore you lead to opposite predictions. First of all, how this whole thing behaves. And then particularly when each contract matures, what would you predict from each of these theories? I laid that out and I said, now here's the data on 130 contracts as every one of them has expired all overlaid on top of each other, but you can see what happens to the silver basis and the gold basis, um, you know, uh, as you approach contract expiry. And, uh, and therefore this, this proves definitively that it's not 
um, naked short manipulation as, as arbitrage. And um, you know, anyway, with all that data. And um, what was interesting is so that that article was covered by everybody. It was on Zero Hedge, it was on Gata, it was on the Metropole Cafe, it was on like every possible site for gold bugs and alternative investing and you know, alternative finance. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure that Mr. Butler woke up that morning with 50 or 100 emails. Did you see, you see what that guy Wiener said? What, what are you gonna say? What are you gonna say? Um, it was every place that he would have had to have been reading, or his, certainly his, his fans and followers would be reading. Dead silence. Awkward. Well, I, I personally believe that there is a certain amount of manipulation that happens on the precious metals markets, but I don't think that it's evidenced by pointing at JP Morgan and saying, hey, they've had 400 trading days without a single loss. I think that's just a sign that JP Morgan is, is doing bullion banking as opposed to, to trading. But you can see um, during thinly traded hours, occasionally a big trading house will try to run stops. So a common practice of traders is to just use technical analysis to, to explain everything, whether it's you know, bond interest movements, uh, stock movements, precious metals movements, commodity movements. And the, these technical traders do trade that way and they put in trailing stops. So one of the easiest ways, I think, for a lot of the big trading houses to make money is to program some algorithms to seek out where these stops are during thinly traded hours and to try to run them. And then the computer-based trading will basically take over once those stops get hit and it will drive the price down and it allows the the big trading companies to basically take advantage of what I would consider to be a a fairly uh, unsophisticated trader. Yeah, and, and so they're they're front running. There's all kinds of things there. I mean, J.P. Morgan, one of their traders, was criminally convicted mm-hmm. of now it wasn't running stops, but it was front running or spoofing, right? Mm-hmm. Putting out fake orders that um, they didn't intend to honor. I'm not sure how the heck a court would determine that versus <laughs> a market maker that's arbitraging between GLD futures, spot, uh, forward, you know, forward market. All kinds of different markets and then maybe other ETFs that they're making a market in as well. Mm-hmm. How they would differentiate and any one move in any one market would necessitate changing all the bids and all the offers and all the other markets. How the how the court would determine that versus uh, a, an order that was put in without the intention to um, you know to, to 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 fill. But um the guy was caught you know for, for that and criminally convicted and everyone says hey there's your proof of manipulation. To which I say, Mountain and Bailey fallacy, sir. The Mountain <laughs> Bailey fallacy is when you have an um, uncontroversial but fairly useless, usually fairly small or, or trivial claim, such as somebody did something bad. Um, you know, uh, the Al Capone's kid stole uh, a candy from the Five and Dime store, um, and then using that to freely migrate to, and therefore, you know, Al Capone is is the Godfather, or and therefore. The price of gold would be sixty thousand dollars, but and would have been sixty thousand dollars decades ago, but for this suppression, this dark cabal that you know keeps it for decades keeps the price tens of thousands of dollars below where it should be, and uh, um, anyway, so, so the article that that I wrote for, in response to Butler doesn't address you know everything that addresses specifically if they held this naked short position, what would happen. And um, expiring. 
right. um, which is one of the one of the leading claims that they uh, that they make. I think. I mean, I think it's fascinating. I don't think there's too many. I don't think there's too many investors in precious metals who can say that they got their start in precious metals from reading the likes of, you know, Benjamin Graham and Warren Buffett, right? I mean, typically when you think of Warren Buffett, you think of this vocal um, opposition to, to, to owning gold and silver. Um, but but it's, it's interesting to me that that's actually how, how you, you got, you know, introduced to those markets. I'm curious if you can fill in the gaps for us. So you, you're, you're reading, you know, about value investing, you see Buffett make his silver trade. And, and then that's how you, you get into the metals yourself. But where, you know, when did you start incorporating this kind of data driven approach? Because, you know, you've produced all these videos, you've got, I mean, just gobs of, of data and research that you've done on portfolio composition and and how gold and silver can occupy a role in in a diversified portfolio. So, so like, connect the dots for us a little bit there. Okay. Well, going going back to Buffett, you know, one of the the principles of science is that when you find something that doesn't make sense, there's an opportunity there to to dig in and figure out whether your your theories are wrong or if there's a data point that's wrong. And so I think it, it behooves anybody that has any kind of a uh, scientific inclination, anytime they see something that contradicts what they believe is true, they, they really ought to pay attention to that and try to dig a little bit deeper. And here, you know, I just want to just pause there and say this. <laughs> this Hi highlight and underline that comment. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, as I, as, I go, as I went through time and studied this, I, I came up with, I came across a lot of different theories for how the world works, uh, at, at least the world of economics. I mean, everybody has their models. Models, they make people comfortable because they, they tend to assign numeric values to things. Um, but going back to my engineering studies, what I've concluded is that oftentimes, the models that people form will reflect their own preconceived notions. So models are only as good as the assumptions that go into them, right? And so usually, especially the more elegant the model, the more you'll find that it's going to give back to you exactly what you think is going to happen based upon the inputs. Right. Mm. This so, reminds me when, when this kind of discussion comes up, all models are wrong. Some models are useful. That's right. I, I, was, I was thinking that same thing. Yeah, I was I wondering who said that. I, I, I don't know if it was Feynman or not. I, I seem to remember it coming up in uh, Statistics for Experimenters by Box, Hunter, and Hunter. I was going to say Box. Yeah. yeah, so I think it was Box. Maybe, Dixon, if you can just put in the caption to the video, the, the link to the Wikipedia page or whatever for who came up with that. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll find one that. The, yeah, one of those subtle insights. Yeah, but I mean, anyway, I mean, go, going back to theories. So the only way to really test a theory is to use data. And you're never really going to confirm that a theory is true, but you can certainly invalidate a theory. I mean, there, there's nothing that ruins a beautiful theory more than one data point that disagrees with it, right? 
And so I tend to focus on coming up with as much data as I possibly can. And whenever it tells me that there's something inconsistent with the way that I view the world, I tend to go back and uh, examine my hypotheses and try to figure out um, where it might be wrong. So all that said, whenever you see all this, uh, you know, all the data that's been compiled in my videos and uh, my writings over the years, one thing that you will probably notice is that there are a lot of conclusions that I drew early on when I was publishing these videos that I don't really hold to anymore. I just haven't taken those down. So it's, it's kind of like a, a giant decade long stream of consciousness that's led from the very beginning up until uh, you know, where, it, where it is currently. That's great. I'm, I'm wondering actually, just for the benefit of, of our audience, if you could spend some time and maybe, maybe walk us through some of your greatest hits over the years, right? Um, so, you know, some, some, of, some of like the big picture um, questions that a lot of precious metal investors have, you, you've kind of attacked those head on using a lot of data um, and have you know, have, have produced really solid answers that I think are a real benefit to, uh, you know, to the precious metal community that's, that's, that's looking, you know, for the answers to those kinds of questions. So I, I got a little list here. Um, this is what I consider to be your greatest hits. You can, you can add or subtract to this list, or we can spend time discussing something else. But so the first one I have here is you, you know, just the problems with using Monte Carlo analysis. So why don't you unpack that one for us? Okay. Um, well, as, as I said, people tend to like models. They, they're comforted by models. And especially when experts put together models, uh, it tends to lead people to believe that the, the models are credible and you, you can do something useful with them. Now, um, a few researchers back in the 1990s um, chief among them was Bill Bengen, who was first to publish this information, uh, took a look at stocks and bonds. And his, uh, the main question he was trying to figure out was, how much could a person withdraw from their portfolio each and every year uh, without running a major risk of running out of money in retirement? And so he had compiled a lot of data uh, through the 20th century, at least the, the data that was available on stocks and bonds. And he concluded that most of the financial um, you know, analysts or, or the uh, consultants were incorrect because they were saying that um, because the stock market had returned 7% real on average over that, uh, those few decades, people could feel safe withdrawing 7%. But he knew that that wasn't uh, the case because the stock market's volatile. And if you sell during a bear market, you're going to end up selling more of the stock than otherwise you would during an average year. So he tested the theories at the time by compiling decades long uh, periods of data and concluded that, no, the answer was closer to four. Now, of course, that was a historical look. It's not a uh, futuristic look. Um, but unfortunately, if you take a look at the data that he had available to him, he was trying to answer how long would a 30, uh, how, how could you make it so that a portfolio would last you for 30 years? But if you're going back to the 1920s and he wrote the paper in uh, the 1990s, how many independent 30-year uh, periods do you have? You really only have two, right? But 
that was one of the um, key limitations of the work that he had. But a lot of um, financial analysts had basically globbed onto his work and the uh, paper that was written a few years later by researchers at Trinity College, which, um, by the way, they, they never even cited Bengen, which was a, a really weird thing. Um, so a lot of financial analysts now, they've extended that work and they think that they can use a tool called Monte Carlo analysis, which is where you take the statistical properties of the various asset classes. So they started with stocks and bonds, and then they included other assets such as commodities, gold, uh, uh, real estate, and things like that. And the theory goes that you can take a particular asset mix, do a lot of simulations on a computer using um, statistical distributions that have been collected over time, and come out with a precise answer for how long or uh, a particular asset mix will last with a given withdrawal policy. Um, makes people feel very, very comfortable because the computer simulations will spit out um, answers like, oh, you only have a 5% chance of running out of money after 30 years, or you only have a 2.1% chance of running out of money after 30 years. Hmm. So it, it makes people feel very comfortable, very confident, um, and so they can basically say to their uh, boss, okay, I'm, I'm leaving the workforce now. The 4% rule tells me that I'll be safe for the next 30 years. I'm, I'm, you know. um, so I had taken a look at that because I was kind of curious about what would happen with mixes of gold and stocks, because some of my research had indicated that uh, a gold stock mix was actually more predictable or more consistent in performance over especially the difficult decades of the 1970s and uh, 2000 to 2010 than a stock bond portfolio was. And I used my own Monte Carlo analysis to analyze what would likely happen to various mixes uh, for a person entering a 30-year retirement. And I found uh, a couple data points that were inconsistent with you know, what, um, what some of my other work had said the results should be. And so I dug deeper and what I found out was that uh, one of the key assumptions behind Monte Carlo analysis is uh, critically flawed. And that is the concept of the random walk. Are you familiar with uh, what a random walk is? Yeah. Okay, so, so a random walk basically says that future performance is completely independent from current performance. Uh, in statistics, you, you refer to that as independent, independent variables, time invariant. Um, so it says that, all right, if you have 7% uh, return in stocks this year, you can't use that to predict what's going to happen to stocks next year or the year after that. So no amount of past data will tell you what's going to happen in the future. And to a certain extent, um, that's true for individual asset classes because the markets tend to be somewhat efficient. And so if you could use the past in order to predict the future, everybody would do it. And I believe that a lot of people do try. And in so doing, when they try, they tend to remove any predictive capabilities because it tends to be priced into the market at any point in time. But the um, key assumption in Monte Carlo is basically that you can take standard deviations of returns and correlate cross correlations between assets 
and use that to predict um, what's, what's likely to happen in the future. So you, know, you do your simulation for this year, then you do another simulation for the following year, then you do another simulation for the year after that. And none of it is dependent upon anything else. It's a true random walk, just like a drunk walking down the street. You don't know which direction the, the drunk's gonna go, but you know, maybe he'll manage to meander down the street after successfully you know, bouncing off a couple buildings. But the problem with that is that the correlations between stocks and bonds actually tends to grow over time. So if you hold stocks for one year, the um, correlation between them, the Pearson R correlation is about 0.3. So that's for a one year holding period. And for stocks uh, versus gold or bonds versus gold, it's, it's basically zero. So there's almost no correlation for a one year holding period. But if you look at a five year holding period or a six year holding period or a seven year holding period, the correlation between stocks and bonds actually becomes fairly high. And the negative correlation between stocks and gold or bonds and gold is actually very negative. So we're talking about um, 0.7 between stocks and bonds and minus 0.8 between stocks and gold. And what that says is that if you have a long stretch of time when bonds or stocks are doing uh, better than average, there's a pretty good probability that gold will do worse than average and vice versa. It's almost as if um, gold is the forgotten asset when bonds and stocks are doing well, but then when stocks and bonds take a turn for the worse, all of a sudden everybody gets religion and they start paying attention to gold again. And so we get periods of time like the decade of the 1970s. With the decade, interject, what makes sense from a theory perspective, being money, it's the thing you hold when there's no other investment or no other speculation that you prefer based on a risk return analysis. So gold is the thing you own when there's nothing else you want to own, which is exactly what, what you're observing in this negative correlation. Like when stocks are going gangbusters, everybody wants to own stocks. They sell the gold to buy more stocks. Right, right. Except they do it in the rear view mirror. I mean, until, until early this year, um, stocks had insane valuations and bond yields were very, very low. But you didn't have any, many people coming out of the woodwork and saying, buy gold. You, know, you should stay away from stocks and bonds. Right? The, these guys, um, what's the old saying? Uh, I think it was Upton Sinclair said, you'd be amazed at how much people can ignore when uh, their livelihood depends on them not knowing it. Uh, it's not an exact quote. That quote. It's impossible to teach somebody something that his salary depends on him not knowing. The right. other quote I was thinking of was uh, Roy Rogers, who said the key to making money in the stock market is to buy the stocks that go up. Um, and if they don't go up, don't buy them. <laughs> yep, yep. Rear view mirror. <laughs> So, so anyway, um, you know, back to Monte Carlo. So be, because of that um, strong negative correlation between gold and the financial assets and the strong positive correlation between bonds and stocks, I think people are misguided by using Monte Carlo from doing any kind of prediction because you will end up with decades such as the 70s or 2000 through 2010 and Monte Carlo is an invalid tool for trying to predict that kind of thing if you don't include that kind of uh, information in it.
Well, so that's a, a problem um, with, with data science more broadly, right? Is if you don't understand the causality of anything, you're just looking at data, it's so easy to trip yourself up. It's so mm -hmm. easy to make a bunch of assumptions. You know, maybe a few of them aren't quite right, but whatever, and you just plow on forward. And then you end up with, you know, a conclusion that because it comes out of a computer, seems like it's got a lot more weight than mm -hmm. it actually should have. And, you know, by the year 2020, the earth will be so hot, it won't be able to sustain life. And, you know, and that sort of, that sort of, um, you know, screaming headline that, you know, that it makes when, when somebody with sufficient gravitas announces it. But, um, you know, what do you really have at the end of the day? Garbage in, garbage out. Right. And that's what, you know, personally, I think makes the Federal Reserve right now so dangerous in their policies is that you have a lot of PhDs who have studied data in the past and they've come up with some very, very elaborate models. Um, but what they haven't done is they, they haven't built in the uh, capacity of human psychology to change. And so I, I happen to uh, believe in an old thesis of uh, Ludwig von Mises, which is that for things that are economic, you're almost best off not trying to quantify them because it's, it's driven by people's psychology more than anything else. Well, and, and the, the fundamental uncertainty of the entrepreneur you think you know what all the jobs are that we need and then the entrepreneur creates a new industry and suddenly there's a hundred thousand jobs that you know we didn't think we needed you know six months ago and the fed is trying to manage um one of those anomalies that um nobody ever seems to ask the question remember earlier when i, I paused and i said this you have a theory right and then you go out and look at the world and when the world contradicts your theory you've got to ask some questions and one of those questions that nobody asks is, is quantity of money the singular cause of rising prices? And um, so as early as at least going for, I saw back as Newt Wexel in the 1890s, um, Wexel went out to try to prove that because he was a monetarist, mm -hmm. and then proved that actually there isn't really a correlation between quantity and prices the correlations between interest rates and prices. That is rising interest rates correlate with rising prices, falling interest rates cause correlate with falling prices. Later, uh, a guy named Gibson comes along and then they name it Gibson's paradox. Mm -hmm. Perhaps only so-called because their theory doesn't get it, it predicts it wrong. Um, this whole thing seems to be forgotten back today where, say, okay, well, we have had inflation and therefore uh, the Fed should hike interest rates. Two problems with that, one, is that the cause of rising prices today is clearly disruptions caused by trade war, green energy restrictions, um, and, um, and the lockdown and, and the, the consequent unlock and what's done to logistics and supply chains. And now finally, Ukraine war. You know, mm -hmm. Ukraine was one of the biggest exporters of both fertilizer and grains. And um, that's clearly offline this year. Um, and we'll see about next year, but for this year, that's gone offline. What does that do to prices? Well, obviously skyrocketing. But even from a monetary perspective, if you have higher interest rates, that means higher input costs to every producer. And the theory is this is going to cause lower prices. Anyways, if you look at the 1970s, actually 1950s through 1970s, you see a great correlation between rising interest rates and rising prices. Rising interest rates was supposed to correct all this, 
why did it why did accelerate inflation just keep accelerating and then the moment that inflation is supposedly broken we have a falling interest rate from 1981 um, arguably through present although right now we're in the middle of a correction uh, it's one of those things where the theory doesn't match the observed data and so therefore people just ignore the data mm -hmm. that's much easier than you know challenging the theory yeah yeah and of course as uh as prices rise the real danger is when the the average everyday person starts to expect continuous price rises and ever you know increasing rates of price escalation and they start taking action accordingly and that tends to feed on itself and it becomes a, a positive feedback loop that was that was the 1970s in a nutshell yep um my parents got to the point where and i and a lot of people did this i don't think there's any anything unique about my household um would you know go grocery shopping and then like whatever was on sale if it was durable like let's say cans of tuna fish or paper towels or toilet paper or dishwashing detergent or whatever would just buy like enough for you know a couple mm -hmm. of years right and they I, I use the term they they traded a bank balance for a pantry balance that goods in the pantry were of known and predictable value and you know cash in the bank was was not then the real danger so that's that's positive feedback loop number one positive feedback number loop which loop number two which feeds on that and makes it worse as corporations get in on the act because they yeah. can sell bonds to finance ever increasing hordes of raw materials and work in progress in between every stage of production. So if, if you go 17 steps from, you know, buying your raw materials to a finished product, you have an increasing buffer filling up a warehouse in between each of those 17 stages. And then of course the buffer of, of finished goods. The longer you go from buying raw materials to selling finished goods, the greater your profit in nominal yeah. terms. And you know, so, one of my favorite articles of yours, Keith, was actually the one where you talked about why Radio Shack did as well as they did in the 1970s because of their inventory. Right. And then they start to get into real pressure in the 1980s and, and, and follow <laughs> when the inventory becomes a problem and not a, not a solution. Right. Um, so anyway, so then the corporations are selling bonds, which means pushing interest rates up in order to chase prices up. So you have chasing interest rates up. The more rates rise, the more they're doing it. In order to buy the more commodities, the more commodity prices rise, the more they're doing it, which mm -hmm. is, I don't think that's, we'll see, but I don't think that's the dynamic we have today right. at all. Um, so, um, anyways, I'm just this whole elaborate extended point to, to corroborate what you're saying about um, confirmation bias and models being wrong and, you know, assumptions to the models being wrong and, uh, and ultimately the Austrian school. You know, Menger talks about this, and a lot of people think he's anti-scientific in saying that you know economic knowledge is a priori and not empirical. And of course, you know, modern philosophy creates this dichotomy. You know, it's the Kantian dichotomy of the nominal versus phenomenal, right? It's either pure analytics that has nothing to do with reality, or pure um, lived experience without any resort to reason or or uh, or principles of any kind. Mm -hmm. What Menger is saying, I think, Menger being Aristotelian, very clearly to me, when you read his method, he's so Aristotelian, he's saying that you have to understand 
economic principles from the causality of it. Suppose two guys come to market, each of them has wheat that they want to sell to the market. It's not, he's, he's debunking the idea that there's a quote unquote right price for wheat that all the previous people would have calculated based on the number of people and the number of wheat bushels being produced and saying that, you know, wheat bushel is supposed to be, or the amount of labor that went into what a wheat bushel is supposed to be, one ounce of silver or whatever it is. He said, clearly, if two guys come to market, both having wheat, there will not be a trade. Mm -hmm. and, and that's obvious, right? And then he's going into why. It's not just because why have wheat, you have wheat, so have a nice day, but that my ask price on the wheat is, is above your bid price. I mean, you, you'd potentially be a buyer of more wheat if you get it cheap enough, right? Then you could bring double the wheat to market. So anyways, then you get into bid and ask and you get into that the spread is inverted and, and it's, it's in neither of our best interests, neither of our economic interests if we're economizing actors to trade my wheat for your wheat. What, what's the point of this? Uh, both of us are gonna look for advantage if at the end of the trade, I end up with a bushel and a half, then I would do it. But of course, why would you? Because then you end up with only half a bushel. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, you know, he, he's emphasizing you have to think this through from first principles, um, which becomes very, very difficult when you're talking about an entire economy. And um, so then the macro guys love to write a differential equation that purportedly, um, uh, you know, describes the economy. I'll, I'll never forget um, discussion in Faculty's classroom when he's talking about, uh, you know, this idea of, of an, an equation. First of all, he said, um, you have an integer number of actors. It's a whole number. It's not, um, you know, down to any fraction. So we'd have to use difference equations, not differential equations. That would be the first problem. Mm -hmm. Second problem is people have free will. <laughs> they're, not, they're not particles of an ideal gas. Um, and then you have the entrepreneur, but even then, uh, I don't know if he said this, if I said this, um, that suppose you have two steak dinners and two hungry people. And so you know, all these equations would say, I think I brought this up as uh, something, a uh, problem with this whole equation thing in, in class, that um, you know the equation would say, okay, fine, you have two steaks to satisfy two people, everything's fine, right? Well, what if you have a fat guy in a restaurant eating two steak dinners and a starving guy looking through the window. These equations just can't tell you anything like that. And so um, the central planner is, is doomed to, to fail um, you know, before, you, before you get started. And, and, and not to mention the models are wrong, the assumptions are wrong, the distributions are never Gaussian. It wasn't that essentially the bottom line for why long-term capital management blew up is that the, it's a power curve, not a, not a Gaussian curve. Well, uh, it also it also explains why gold coin and or silver coin basically went out of circulation during uh, 19th century America. It's because government tried to fix the price of one relative to the other by stamping the number on a coin. Right. Right. So, <laughs> whichever one's undervalued comes to market, and whichever one's overvalued is either hoarded or gets sold in global markets. You get a better price for it. Yep. That's right. Despite despite the terrible uh, historical track record of price fixing, it, it seems like we're still we're still having a go at it. I saw a headline last week that they're talking about putting price controls in for for gasoline, you know, for fuel. So just uh, we'll we'll never learn. 
back to the 70s. <laughs> right. uh, I, for one, look forward to uh, odd and even license plate days. I want to I want to go back to something that you kind of glossed over, Paul, because I think it's actually a really key point. Um, when you were when you were talking about the problems with Monte Carlo analysis, you you said that, as it turns out, what your research shows is that a a stock to gold portfolio, I think it, like 65, 35 or I, don't, I can't remember the exact um, proportion, but actually that. When you when you had gold in the portfolio, or or if you replaced bonds with gold, you actually had better performance. Tell us a little bit about that. How you how you came to that? You know what's what are your findings there on? You know what role what role can gold have in a portfolio and how it how it helps performance? Okay, well, um, better performance I think is is a little bit of a problematic phrase. Um, so what, what I would say is that gold tends to be able to make things more predictable, which is, or it has. I mean, everything that we're talking about right now is based upon past record. It doesn't mean that in right. it's going to hold, but um, my, my feeling is that without taking a look at the past, how are you going to make any kind of decisions about what the future might hold? Um, so if you take a look at the, the past data, and I start with 1971 because that was the seminal event that completely changed the nature of, of what the dollar was and what bonds are. And I, I looked forward from 1971 all the way through 2021. And what I found was that the inclusion of even a little bit of gold um, to a stock portfolio would tend to make year to year performance uh, a lot more even. And what's more important is that it, it tended to make stretches of five to 10 year performance, uh, much, much more consistent. And that, that's uh, a little bit paradoxical because everybody points at gold and says, hey, look at the volatility of gold. It's all over the place, right? And it doesn't really produce a, a return. So why the heck would you want to own this? And the answer really goes back to what I was saying, which is that people tend to find religion when the financial assets tend to do poorly and they, they tend to focus on gold. And so um, I think over the past, gold has at least allowed people to stay whole when their financial assets are falling apart. And so I, I think it behooves everybody to put at least a little bit of gold into a portfolio. And I happen to know that a lot of wealthy families <clears throat> always have done this throughout history because they know that there have been periods of time when mm. financial assets just um, basically fall out of bed. And the only thing that they can count on to preserve family wealth is you know, find real estate, collectibles, art, you know, antiques, and gold, right? So what I found was that the most consistent performer over the past 50 years was a mix of about, let's say, one-third gold and two-thirds S&P 500. I also took a look at foreign stocks, and the relationship wasn't nearly as clean. I mean, some of the conclusions did still hold, but I think part of the problem was that I was taking a look at performance uh, in US dollar terms and capital flows tend to partially be dictated by how well a country's stock market is doing. Um, when you reduce the amount of uh, gold in that portfolio, uh, the average performance did happen to go up. Average performance meaning uh, average you know, yearly real return, mm. um, but the volatility got a little bit higher. Right. And so I think the sweet spot for most investors 
is probably in honestly the uh, 10 to 20% level. And the reason why I say that is that although I found that about one third gold seems to be the most consistent, I don't know that a lot of people have the temperament to, right. ma to maintain that kind of asset mix. Uh, other problems that tend to come up are you know, the frictions of rebalancing. When, when you sell stocks or sell gold, um, you're obviously going to be paying a bid-ask spread. And especially if you're involved in physical metals, that, that bid-ask spread can be pretty punishing, especially in, in silver, as you know. Um, but there's also taxes, right? Uh, so, so there are certain frictional costs when you do the rebalancing, which is another reason why I think that a lot of people are probably better served with a 10 to 20%. And I think they're, they're probably best served by not rebalancing every year because, you know, again, as I said, the correlation between these assets tends to become more and more negative with longer holding times. And so um, doing a rebalance gradually. So for example, if you had a 15% uh, target allocation of gold, you wait to the end of the year, you find out how much you're off and maybe you rebalance a third of the way. And oh, that, I see. Grad that's, that's what you mean by gradual rebalance. So you don't you don't complete the entire. Okay, you don't go you don't go back to the the target immediately. You kind of scale into that target over time. Yeah, that's okay. a, a bit of a more gradual rebalancing. Uh, another approach that I, I uh, propose is that for a person who's accumulating assets, if you have new funds that you want to deploy, maybe you just use those to buy the the asset that's under your right. target allocation. Right. And similarly, when you're on the other side of retirement and you're drawing down your portfolio, um, just sell the one that's over its allocation. And that way you can minimize the, the trading frictions that I was talking about. Right. Yeah. I, you know, when I hear that, I, it always just makes me scratch my head a little bit, because when you look at going back to your original point about 401ks, retirement accounts and, and you know, when you think about mainstream investing, the the 60-40 portfolio, even though it's, I think, coming under a lot of heat recently, um, still is kind of the mainstay for, for that world. And it's it's just like gold has kind of been relegated, you know, just kind of pushed off the off the playing field. You know, why is that? Because the data shows something else, right? The data shows that there is... Um, a role for gold. Um, I, I, yeah. I chuckled slightly when um, Paul, you were talking about um, 30%. We did a white paper on that 60-40 portfolio and what happens if you add, uh, I call it a little slug of gold to it. And so we found that without, without me, I'm, I'm not yet going to reveal what I mean by little or slug. Uh, we found that by putting gold in the portfolio um, and we did probably similar analysis to what you did, we just went back to data, all the data going back to 1971 for stocks and bonds, S&P 500 and the 10-year treasury specifically. And we found that um, by putting that little slug of gold, you got lower volatility as measured by the sharp ratio, mm -hmm. um, smaller drawdowns. So if you're an institutional investor or a retiree, the drawdowns are what you're really worried about. Like above all else, don't have big drawdowns. Right. And you know, yes, you want big upside too, but you know, uh, the fact that you might have a big upside next year, if you have a big drawdown this year, it's really bad. Might um, not be a next year. And the <laughs> enhanced returns, for the amount of gold that we use, the enhancement of the return wasn't enough to really write home about. 
Um, but anyways, we, we, by little slug, I mean 4%. Is it 4% gold in the portfolio? Mm-hmm. Not that we didn't think people could or should go for more than 4%, but rather we felt that we would not come across as a credible white paper institutional <laughs> circles. If we said more than 4%, we would start to look like, you know, a little wild haired uh, and a little woolly um, to, to be talking. That's crazy talk. That's outside the Overton window. So we just left it at 4%. And I think, did we mention, Dixon, that if you go with a greater percentage of gold, you get you know even better improvements. We just like had a slight footnote or something. Yeah, no, you're right. We, 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 we did. And, and moved on. Right. And, um, you know, trying to make the case for 4%. And then obviously our case was with yield on that 4% of 3%, then it's a game changer for the portfolio over you know a, a time period of 50 years like 1971 to present over that kind of time frame if you're getting three percent on your four percent then the portfolio really takes off relative to the 60 40 standard portfolio that was the point we were trying to make anyways um, but anyway it's just interesting how even in the gold community if you if you wrote on on kitco or or zero hedge or uh you know a similar site and said so I recommend 30% gold in your portfolio. I mean, do, do you just take yourself out of serious consideration? Do you go into, uh, you know, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you've said that publicly or what the response has been. Um, whenever people ask me about it, I just say, look, I can't give financial advice. I just think everybody should have some and, and you know, leave it to them as to what they should say, which is probably appropriate given, you know, my, my position as CEO of Monetary Metals. But I'm curious if you, have said anything like 20 or 30 and how people have responded if you said that. Oh yeah, uh, in, in my videos, I've shown how the 35, a 35%, 65% stock and gold portfolio has, has basically beaten 35. the pants off of the 60, 40 you know, stock bond portfolio over the past five decades and was more consistent in terms of performance. It did not have, um, a decade of bad performance in the 70s or again in, in the 2000s. It was just, you know, pretty much up. I mean, of course, there were swings up and down. You, you can't have return without having some kind of variability. But I think mo- most people did see that with an open mind. And fortunately for me, I'm, I'm a, a small guy without too much of a following, and I'm an engineer. I've, I, I've had this thought in the past that the financial industry has grown to resemble very closely the medical industry. And when I say that, what I mean is that you have, whenever you're giving, or whenever a doctor is giving medical advice, he feels a lot of pressure to conform with what the vast majority of doctors in the medical field basically say. And if he deviates and something goes wrong, he opens himself to a malpractice suit. I think the same is true for a lot of financial professionals, especially the credentialed ones, where if they deviate from what everybody has accepted as true and something were to happen, they would either get sued or lose their job. It's okay if we lose 50% of your value in this bad year because our benchmark is the S&P 500 and the S&P 500 went down 51%. We outperformed our benchmark. Right. We do something that's different and non-standard, and therefore we lose the the umbrella of a benchmark to, to hide behind. Then you know what the hell's wrong with you, you idiot? You lost fifty percent of your client's money. 
we're get, the regulators are going to shut you down, and the and the you know the, the clients will become plaintiffs and sue you out of existence. Yep. Um, and if, and if you have problems, you can always rely on your Monte Carlo simulations, right? That's right. <laughs> that's right. And back tested models. Oh, that was the other thing I was going to say earlier about the back testing and the problem in data science is that uh, to your point about you know if if you're doing thirty year periods and you're writing this in the let's say early nineties. So let's say you start with 1925 to 1955 is one period, 1955 to 1985 mm -hmm. is another period. Right. You only only have two good periods plus whatever another few years before you wrote your paper. Um, anything in um, don't even get me started on so-called artificial intelligence. <laughs> a few tweets back and forth uh, with, with a couple of folks about AI, which is really nothing more than um, you know either either training models to um, interpolate, hopefully nonlinear interpolation at least, or pattern recognition, um, then you know the problem is if you have less data than you think you have, because there's either, you know, if you look at it, there's not very many periods in it, or there's a lot of correlation in your data because three variables that you think are independent are really actually two dependent and one semi-independent. So you have less data than you think um, for whatever reason. You can easily overtrain the model, and the model is going to give you a really good fit. You know, should 1925 to 1955 ever recur, you've got the perfect model to you know to, to train you for that. So I guess if you went back in the time machine to 1925, man, you've just got a great model for what to do. Assuming you didn't have the daily right. newspaper, uh, you know, ticker or whatever. Um, but in terms of predicting 20, 2025 to 2055. Uh, not so much. Yeah, and don't don't forget a uh, once in a thousand year event seems to happen about once every ten or twenty years right now. Right, the the uh, yeah. un, un, the unlikely event seems to be a lot more likely than the models say. <laughs> like, isn't that like um, how every year companies seem to have non-recurring charges? Right. <laughs> it goes without saying, but but this was great, uh, Paul. It was a treat to have you. Um, we did not even come close to, to addressing all of the items on our list. So what that means is we'll just have to have you back on for, for another show and we can, we can address the other items, uh, on my list here. Oh, that would be great. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, hope to have you again soon. Okay. Well, thanks for the invitation. Dixon, Keith. Thank you very much. Let's do that. This episode was brought to you by Monetary Memphis. Monetary Metals is a different kind of gold company. Others buy and sell gold. Monetary Metals operates the Gold Yield Marketplace, a platform of products that offer a yield on gold paid in gold to investors and institutions. And our gold financing simplified, reliable financing denominated in gold with a built-in hedge for gold using and gold producing businesses. To learn more, visit www.monetary-metals.com. .com. See you next time.